And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on our show, we begin our series of conversations with the candidates for this election cycle. Between now and the primary on May 14th, I will speak with candidates for local offices here in Baltimore, congressional seats, and the U.S. Senate. Tomorrow, my guest will be former Baltimore Mayor Sheila Dixon. She's running for mayor for the third time since leaving office after a misdemeanor conviction in 2009. She'll join me live here in Studio A tomorrow on Midday. You are welcome to send questions and comments for former Mayor Dixon. Our email address, midday at wipr.org. And now it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen as we lean into our New Year's resolutions. Dr. Wen has written about some lifestyle changes that we should consider and how to get the most out of our exercise regimens. Regular listeners to our show know that Dr. Wen is one of America's most trusted and knowledgeable public health experts. We are proud and grateful that she has been a regular guest on Midday for many years. She's a former health commissioner of Baltimore. She's a columnist on health matters for The Washington Post, a medical expert at CNN, and a scholar at George Washington University and the Brookings Institution. Dr. Wen joins us on Zoom, and you are welcome to join us as well. 410-662-8780, our email midday at wypr.org. Lena, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Happy New Year to you as well. So there is this new coronavirus variant, JN.1, and it's out there. It's spreading. Uh, I could probably name six or seven close friends uh, who've had COVID in the last two weeks. Um, it's coming back. Uh, what do we need to know about this variant, uh, and what do you think folks should be doing about it? Well, what we should know about this new variant is that this is one of many that we're going to continue to talk about. And this variant is quickly spreading. However, the good news is that it doesn't appear to be resistant to the vaccines or treatments that we have. And you're right, Tom, when we look at the national trends, as well as the trends here in Maryland, we are seeing an increase in COVID-related hospitalizations. We are seeing deaths from COVID um, increase. We're seeing test positivity rise. We're seeing increases in wastewater um, um, uh, and the, the detection of viruses in wastewater. So all of these indicate that we are seeing an increase in COVID cases. But that, again, is to be expected. Ever since the start of COVID, we have seen an increase following the holidays, following the winter holidays in particular, when people are gathering, when it's colder outside. Um, the fact that there are new variants arising is also to be expected because we do have a very contagious respiratory virus that is spreading. And so what people should take away from all of this is that this is the this is the continuing pattern of what we'll see. And the best thing for people to do is to protect the vulnerable among us. And so, for example, if you were just in, uh, if you just attended many Christmas, New Year's, other holiday get togethers in crowded settings, now is probably not the best time to be visiting your relatives who are in nursing homes or friends who just had a bone marrow transplant or other people who are um, uh, who are really likely to become ill if they um, if they contracted the coronavirus or other respiratory diseases. We should also, by the way, make sure that those individuals, the extremely vulnerable, that they are protected as much as possible. They should make sure to have their up-to-date COVID vaccines. I think it's a major problem that, for example, nursing home residents, that only about 36%, which is a third of nursing home residents in the U.S., have their updated COVID shot. That's a big problem. And Paxlovid and other antiviral treatments are still underutilized. So people who are vulnerable 
We need to make sure that they have their vaccines and treatments and do our best to shield them, especially if we have been participating in um, in in higher risk risk and higher exposure activities. Yeah, about 81 percent of uh, Americans countrywide, you know, nationwide, got at least one dose of the original vaccine. But uh, some 56 million people, that's only about 17 percent of Americans are getting or got the bivalent booster. Um, that was approved last year. Now there's a newer one than the bivalent booster. If you skip the bivalent booster, should you still get the newest one? Is that still going to be effective? That's a great question, and the answer is absolutely yes. In, in fact, it's really important for people who did not get the last booster to get this one because they it's probably been a while since their last exposure to COVID. Now, that said, if you just had COVID, so if you just had COVID, tested positive, and then recovered from it, you can wait at least three months, probably even six months, before receiving your next COVID shot. Um, the issue here, as you and I have talked about many times on, on Midday, Tom, is that the immunity to COVID wanes over time. And so if you were vaccinated last year, um, a year ago, you, the amount of protection you have against COVID has waned a lot, including against severe illness. But if you recently had COVID, um, you still have strong protection against the coronavirus. So in short, unless you recently had COVID, you should consider getting the updated COVID shot. And it's really important if you are in a vulnerable category. So if you're 65 and older, or if you're 50 and older with chronic medical conditions, or if you're anyone with an immunocompromising medical condition. Uh, you mentioned nursing homes uh, and the low uptake uh, in nursing homes nationwide, but you uh, found a couple of places that were kind of unusual. They wouldn't be the first places that came to mind as places that have really high uh, uptake rates of uh, the latest vaccines. Tell us uh, about that reporting that you've done in The Washington Post. Yeah, so I, I did a series on nursing home vaccinations and specifically exploring why is it that the uptake of the COVID booster is so low and so shockingly and unacceptably low in nursing homes across the country. And one might think, just um, just looking at the um, looking at the 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 situation that we're in, that maybe this is vaccine hesitancy, and for sure, vaccine misinformation or disinformation plays a part. But actually, the data tell a different story. So let me give you two different data points here. One is that when you look at the map, and the CDC has a map of, um, has a lot of different maps uh, around COVID, but one map that's very interesting is around states and the um, COVID booster uptake um, in nursing homes. When you look at the map, there are two states that really stand out in terms of how high their uptake is. And these are definitely not the states that you would normally think about if vaccine hesitancy were the main reason why why nursing home residents are not getting vaccinated. The two standout states that are doing particularly well are North Dakota and South Dakota. Even when the rest of the U.S. had uh, nursing home vaccination rates of 20% or so, North and South Dakota had uh, uptake rates of 50% or more. And so I spoke to health officials there, and some of the reason has to do with the fact that there is a there's one health system um, that operates across both of these states that also operate nursing homes. And so it's an integrated 
um, it becomes an integrated process then where um, nursing home residents who have not received their um, their COVID vaccines are then flagged. Their physicians can talk to them. The follow-up conversations can occur in the nursing home. So there's a system for tracking these shots. The other part is that um, in these um, in these states, there's also a close relationship between pharmacies and these long-term care facilities. And so um, one of the one of the challenges that I found um, that was not previously aware of was that with the end of the public health emergency, many things changed when it comes to reimbursement of the shots. And so previously, pharmacists were able to um, to receive re reimbursement for all the COVID shots that they delivered in nursing homes. Now, that's no longer the case. And so facilities would often have to purchase the shots themselves and then get reimbursed later. But then because these shots are delivered in multi-dose vials, there's the concern about wastage. If only a, if only one shot is going to be used and these nursing homes are operating on shoestring budgets and so have difficulty covering them. In any case, there are all these administrative barriers that are, um, that are in the way as well. And so the second data point I wanted to mention here, Tom, is that um, even within a single community, you could see vastly different nursing home vaccination rates. So uh, there could be one nursing home where less than 10% of the residents are vaccinated and another nursing home in the same community, just a few miles apart, where the vaccination rate is over 90%. And so it can't simply be vaccine hesitancy that's the problem. Actually, the processes that we have and the commitment from the leadership in the nursing homes has a lot to do with the low vaccine uptake in some places and in, in a positive sense um, with how some nursing homes have really been able to achieve quite remarkable outcomes. Yeah, that really is uh, really astonishing that North and South Dakota are the places with such high uptake rates because you think uh, politically they are not the places that uh, are going to be, you know, big vaccine, uh, forgive the expression, boosters. I mean, they're, they are uh, you know, just thought, uh, given the political bifurcation around this issue, uh, that they would be places, uh, you know, that are very, uh, uh, they're red states. Uh, Mr. Trump carried both of them uh, by large margins uh, in the last election. Uh, but here they are. Uh, they're doing a great job getting their nursing home residents vaccinated. It's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. You can join our conversation if you have a question or comment for Dr. Wen, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wipr.org. So, Lena, uh, first of the year comes with all sorts of great aspirations and uh, pledges to ourselves about how we're going to clean up our act and, uh, you know, get on a, a much more healthier uh, lifestyle and uh, exercise regimen. Um, you wrote a really interesting piece in the Post about three things that can uh, can people can consider doing uh, that could really add years to our lives, and there are three things that you might not think about uh, necessarily uh, as at the top of the list. The first is hearing aids. That's really interesting. Why do you, why is that on your list? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about these three lifestyle changes that are based on. Um, are on fairly simple improvements, as in so much of my coverage also has been on high tech advancements and artificial intelligence and pharmaceutical interventions. And all those things are important, but sometimes you have to go to the basics as well, go back to the basics as well. And so when it comes to hearing aids, we know from the data that as many as 40 million Americans suffer some, from some degree of hearing loss. 
And we also know that hearing loss is associated with many negative health outcomes, including developing dementia um, and depression and falls and even premature death. It's very interesting, though, that hearing aids can reverse many of these ill effects. So, for example, there was a study published last year in The Lancet that found that seniors who are at the higher who are at higher risk for dementia, if they were had an almost in cognitive decline compared to people who did not use them. And another paper found that people who were hearing aids were half as likely to fall as those who didn't. And so I, I think it's, um, this is, oh. well, maybe it'll help them um, function better in social settings, and that may be true, but there are actually really significant health benefits that come from wearing them too. Dr. Lena Wen is with us. It's the Midday Health Watch. And Lena, we're having a little trouble with your Zoom connection, so we're going to reconnect. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here and reconnect and come back and talk about other things other than hearing aids that you can do that will actually uh, extend uh, life expectancy. It's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Wen. You can join us after a break at 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wipr.org. And before we go to a break... Each week here on our program, it's our practice to read the names of people who have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. We do this to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. We get their names from a researcher named Ellen Worthing, the Baltimore Sun, and the Baltimore Police Department. In 2023, 262 people were identified as victims of homicide in our city. That number includes 20 people who were killed in previous years but whose cause of death was determined to be homicide in 2023. By way of comparison, that is 68 fewer people who were included in the homicide count in 2022. The body of Petey Edwards, age 39, was found in New Jersey on December 9th Police believe he was killed in Baltimore sometime after November 1st. Marin Benjamin, age 44, was shot in 2009. He died in May of 2022. And for reasons that are difficult to ascertain, the medical examiner determined his death to be a homicide just last week. Christopher Brogdon, age 20, was shot in September of 2023. The office of the state's attorney has determined that Mr. Brogdon was shot in self-defense, so his death was removed from the 2023 homicide count. Police have identified five of the eight people who were killed over the last two weeks of 2023. They are Tyrone Fields, age 44, Kayla Anjjar, age 32, James Venable, age 65, Danshawn Stooks, age 45, and Charlie Gamble. She was two years old. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back.
This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, it's the Midday Health Watch today with Dr. Lena Wen. In 2019, Dr. Wen was included in Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the country. She's an emergency physician. She teaches at the George Washington University School of Public Health. She writes a column for the Washington Post. She's a medical expert for CNN, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and the author of Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for public health. She's also, of course, a former health commissioner here in the city of Baltimore. She joins us on Zoom. You're welcome to join us as well. 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. So, Lena, before the break, we're talking about uh, things you can do, uh, lifestyle changes that can really help things out. Hearing aids, uh, you mentioned, uh, can can even help with things like falls, as you just said. Uh, it's something that people might not, you know, associate uh, immediately. The other thing you talk about, one of the others, is social connections. Boy, just as a matter of health, uh, friends and family really are important. Absolutely. And again, this is something that maybe people will understand that social connection can help with mental health. But the degree to which it helps with physical health may be surprising. According to research that's cited by the CDC, social isolation increases your risk of heart disease by as much as 29% and your risk of dementia by 50%. And interestingly, isolation also increases your risk of premature death as much as it would um, if you were smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So we all talk about reducing smoking or stopping smoking as something that we need to do in order to improve our physical health. Well, consider that social connection um, can do the same. And so I do want to make the point, though, that loneliness is not the same thing as being alone, as in there are some people who are introverts who really don't need a lot of time with other people. But rather, we're talking here about loneliness and individuals who are unhappy because of how lonely they are. And there are a lot of people who fall into this category. Some reports indicate that more than one in three Americans are experiencing serious loneliness. And so there are ways to um, to improve our social connection, um, including things that are pretty small, like designating a few minutes a day to catch up with loved ones on the phone, or putting aside our electronics during conversations, or being mindful about increasing the time that we have um, with, with our friends who are near us, or reconnecting with, with old friends. I mean, small things can make a big difference, and I think that's the, um, that's what I wanted to emphasize here, that um, so often we think about improving our health as, well, we need to start this drug or we need to start this new app or this new technology, when actually there are things that are steps that are available to all of us um, that just take a few minutes a day that can actually make a big difference. And the third thing you mentioned in this piece in the post uh, is exercise. I think we all know that exercise, you know, generally speaking, uh, is a good thing. Uh, but in terms of, you know, cardiovascular disease, even cancer, uh, exercise uh, in, in not huge amounts. I mean, you, you write that uh, just really modest amounts of exercise on a daily basis can really help uh, in a big way. How so? 
That's right. So the CDC's recommendation is for people to receive 150 minutes a week of moderate or high intensity physical activity. And that's the recommendation. So that's about 22 minutes a day of doing something like brisk walking or even energetic household errands um, can accomplish that um, that that uh, um, that national requirement or that 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 national guidance. Um, but what is what was really interesting is that there's new research showing that people who achieve just half that recommended amount also see substantial benefits. So if you just have 75 minutes a week, which is only about 11 minutes a day, that that brings about a 17% reduction in cardiovascular disease, a 7% decrease in cancer risk, and a whopping 23% lower chance of early death. And so I think that's really significant because many people may have a um, may have concerns about getting 150 minutes a week. That sounds like a lot. But really, most of us are able to do at least 11 minutes a day. And so the takeaway here is that there is a dose-response relationship, meaning that the more you do, the better up to a certain point. However, the biggest gain is between doing nothing and doing something. And so even something as simple as taking the stairs instead of the elevator or parking an extra block away or just making 11 minutes a day to do brisk walking around the block that um, can have um, a bigger difference than um, taking cholesterol medications or other things that are also important and that we emphasize. Um, but again, these lifestyle interventions um, can can substantially improve health. We have an email from a listener, uh, Jay, who says, I've developed severe osteoarthritis in my left knee over the last 60 days. Even with Tylenol and glucosamine chondroitin doses, Almost any exercise at levels I was accustomed to is difficult. Any suggestions for Jay? Mm. Yeah, this is really challenging. And I think that for many people with aging, with injury or illness, we need to adjust our expectations and adjust our um, uh, adjust to what may be a new baseline. As then I think so often we may say, well, what we used to do is this, and now we can't do that exact exercise. So maybe we'll wait until that injury is is gone. But there are there's another way of thinking about it too, which is sometimes those injuries may persist. Or also, we may have to reset our baseline altogether and do something different. And so I would wonder if there are other types of exercises that the listener is able to do that may not trigger the same amount of pain. So, for example, if he's used to running or walking, if instead he's able to do swimming or a stationary bike. I would also say in this case that consulting a physical therapist or another exercise professional may be of, of help here as well in finding new routines that may achieve the same level of physical activity, but in a different way than um, he was previously used to. Because when we talk about moderate intensity exercise, um, you know, 11 minutes, 20 minutes, uh, and frankly, you know, 11 or 20 minutes, 22 minutes a day, I have a lot of friends at the gym who are going to be very happy to hear that. They're going to say, oh, good, I can leave much earlier than I've been leaving for these past decades. Um, but there there are a number of things that, that you can do. I mean, you mentioned, you know, just parking a little further away and walking briskly uh, to where you're going. I mean, it, it's really a matter of prioritization, isn't it? It's a matter of allocating time each day that say, yep, you know, this is really important to me. So I'm not going to just blow it off. I'm not going to maybe, you know, sleep that extra uh, 20 minutes or half hour in the morning. I'm going to get up uh, and get moving. It's just a matter of, of deciding that we're going to do it. 
I think another way of thinking about this too is what if there were a pill that were discovered that could lower your chance of premature death by almost 30%. I think a lot of us would say, well, I need to take that pill. <laughs> Certainly it would be something that the that drug manufacturers would want to cash in on. But that exists and that something is exercise. And so I think we just should not forget, to your point, Tom, the importance of how these small things can really add up. Um, and by the way, your friends who are already doing this level of exercise, I'm not saying that they should reduce their level of exercise. Um, actually, the more people do, um, the better. There is a dose-response relationship again. And so if you're able to take 10,000 steps, that's going to be better than taking 5,000 steps. But I think what often happens is that people will say, well, 10,000 steps sounds like too much. I can never get there, and therefore I'm not going to take. I'm not going to do anything. Um, I'm just going to resume my uh, my general sedentary lifestyle. And studies are very clearly showing that going from, let's say, a thousand steps to five thousand steps, that's going to make the biggest difference. Going from five thousand steps to ten thousand steps will still make a difference too, and you should do that if you are able. But for people who have previously had a fairly sedentary lifestyle. Um, starting that little bit of physical activity, that's where that biggest difference is going to come. Dr. Lena Wen is my guest. It's the Midday Health Watch, our number 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. If you have a question or a comment, have you made a resolution to you know, change up your exercise regimen. Uh, and when you do it, and of course, Lena, you've written about uh, not only just exercise, but making the most of the exercise that you do. I guess a, a mix of, of cardiovascular uh, exercise as well as uh, weights and that kind of stuff is, is a good idea. What's your what's your advice to patients uh, when they're, if they are starting a new exercise regime in terms of how to, how to vary it, how to mix it up? That's right. And so I would say this is maybe the more, uh, a slightly more advanced version, as in if somebody has been totally sedentary, they just want to get started. I think the brisk walking around the block, um, doing something is going to be better than doing nothing. And generally, cho choosing an activity that you can stick with is also going to be better as well. And double points for you if you're able to do that with somebody else, because as we talked about, social connection um, and reducing loneliness will also improve your health. And so if you can find a friend, a neighbor that you you can walk around the block with or that you're able to engage in some um, activity like aqua aerobics or something else, that's also that that's also terrific. But there are many people who want to know too, well, now that I'm exercising, as you said, Tom, how can you make the most of it? What else can you be doing? And there are a lot of studies that demonstrate that you need both aerobic exercise as well as strength training. And strength training doesn't have to be just um, as some people may think, which is lifting weights. Strength training could also be Pilates. It could also be yoga. It could also be Tai Chi. It could be things that, that help you with mobility as well. Um, but um, strength training studies have shown um, um, that people who engage in any form of strength training will have a reduced rate of diabetes and cardiovascular disease compared to people who report no strength training, but actually have a comparable level of of aerobic activity. And so I think that's um, that's important. And also we know that strength and mobility training is um, particularly helpful for us as we age because it reduces the speed of bone loss and also decreases injuries, including from fall. So emphasizing that strength, resistance, mobility training, 
doesn't just have to be about working out at the gym. Although if you do have access to a gym, um, there are um, there uh, there's a lot of equipment there that you can use for low impact activities. But even if you don't have access to a gym, things like squats or lunges or other things that you can Google and find fairly easily on the internet, those types of things you can do at home with no equipment. We have a question about uh, COVID here. This is Joy in Reisterstown. Reisterstown says, I had COVID in August of 2022, so about a year and a half ago. My symptoms were mild, and I did a five-day course of Paxlovid, and then I acutely developed swollen joints, uh, vertigo, and tinnitus about two weeks later. I was diagnosed with post-viral inflammatory osteoarthritis and have been on hydroxychloroquine for, fi for the past 15 months. Is there any data on this subject? Wow. Um, I'm sorry, first of all, to hear that you've been going through um, all of this. It sounds like this may be a manifestation that we would associate with long COVID, as in um, for people who have had COVID, but who continue to have persistent symptoms that are thought to be associated with that viral infection. It's possible that that could also include some of the issues that you're experiencing, that Joy is experiencing, um, including um, these joint pains and inflammation and other things as well. And so um, this is an area that is under active investigation. I think a lot more needs to be done to understand long COVID as well as related post-viral conditions. Because as we know, it's not only COVID that can cause this constellation of lingering symptoms, but a lot of other viruses, um, for example, Epstein-Barr, virus has also been associated with things like chronic fatigue syndrome um, as well. And so I think we need to understand a lot more about this. Um, but I'm, again, very sorry to hear that she has been going through um, these lingering and quite significantly life-altering symptoms. Tom in Mount Vernon, who's a regular listener and a good friend of the show, reminds folks that the Baltimore City Department of Aging will send out people to administer COVID shots for seniors who are homebound. So if you do contact the Department of Aging, you can get somebody to come out and give you a COVID vaccine if you need one. We have an email from Kim about hearing aids. This Christmas, our father admitted that he knows he needs hearing aids. He's insistent on them having Bluetooth capabilities, and he went to his doctor to get them fitted and quoted. However, the prices for the hearing aids were outrageous. Do you have suggestions on other ways that he can get hearing aids he wants for a reasonable price? Yeah, this is a major issue. I think it's a very significant problem um, that Medicare coverage is not required for hearing aids. Depending on your on, on your Medicare plan, it may cover hearing aids, but this is not required. So I think, again, this is a, a, a big issue. I think it really depends um, on what type of hearing aids um, this listener's father is is willing to have. I mean, hearing aids are priced at all different price points. Um, some hearing aids are, are now sold over the counter as well, thanks to an FDA decision last year. Um, and so, and there are also manufacturer discounts that you may be able to find by contacting the, the manufacturer directly. And so I, I'd say um, maybe this is a case where um, perfect is not the enemy of the good, as in maybe the exact hearing aid that your father wants is not available, but there may be something else that he's able to use in the meantime. And again, we tend to think about hearing aids as maybe it helps with um, with hearing your relatives or your friends better, but actually it has such a significant impact on, on health, on reducing dementia, reducing falls, and other things too. So having something is going to be better than, than having nothing. 
Well, we didn't get to all of our questions from listeners, but we got to a good chunk of them. Dr. Lena Wen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your help and perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Tom. Dr. Lena Wen, a former Baltimore City Health Commissioner and the author of Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, former Baltimore Mayor Sheila Dixon joins me for the first installment of the year in our series of Conversations with the Candidates. Ms. Dixon is again running for the Democratic nomination for mayor of Baltimore. Coming up now, it's here and now, so stick around. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station. Member supported 881 WYPR.